everybody. This is Alicia Leshesky. We are here with another episode of CX on Point with Miguel Ramos. But where is Miguel today? He's not here. He's working. Um, so we are bringing in two of the other founders of P3 that I don't believe this audience has ever met yet because they are always working so much. So please join me in welcoming uh, Rick Ferry and Ken Epstein. Hello, hello to both of you. Hey, Alicia, how are you today? Hey, Alicia. Doing good, doing good. At this, Hopefully, uh, this will be a very fun experience because we need you guys to come back and host more of these for Miguel. So we're going to try to keep it light and fun today. Um, but we've all worked together for many years, um, and I think most people familiar with P3 um, have a, a tremendous amount of respect for both of your backgrounds. So what I was thinking we could do today is just really kind of talk historically and currently what uh, what are the biggest trends in, in CX today and, and really these crazy times that we're living in. Um, seem to be kind of turning points for CX. Um, but let's uh, kick it over. I'll probably start with you, Rick, our veteran pioneer in the industry, right? Sure. And I'll, I'll not even endeavor to answer the question, where in the world is Miguel Ramos? Because nobody really knows. He's, uh, he has been extraordinarily busy over the last couple of weeks. But gosh, what a ride we're on now. You know, not to be hokey, but to paraphrase something that uh, Albert Einstein once said, and that is, even in the depths of crisis, opportunity often emerges. And no one wants to uh, caustically sit back and take a commercial advantage of such a dire situation that the world found itself in. But for the betterment of all industries, we should all be compelled to take a look. And gosh, that's largely what the customer experience industry, if you'll have it, has done over these last 18 months or so. You know, um, the number of uh, general business process outsourcing firms and captive firms had a minimal experience in at-home deployments just 18 months ago. Now, the majority of people are working from at home. And what it's done to us, it's humanized us a little bit, hasn't it? It's uh, not out of the ordinary to hear a dog barking in the background or a child's laughter, or maybe an unhappy child in the background. And we've all been able to project empathy. And that's a, it's a fantastic thing. And what it opens up for us, and I think it opens up a great door. And that is and a conundrum at the same time. How do we keep that empathy going, yet still pursue a path of digitization mm -hmm. where we can apply more intelligence but apply it in a humanistic fashion. And that is incredibly important because right now, for example, we are uh, in the healthcare vertical. We're in the throes of the annual open enrollment period for Medicare and Medicaid. And it's so extraordinarily important to the payer, to the insurance company and uh, the client from our, our perspective. And it's also very important to the people involved, isn't it? Because Medicare is just that, it, it caters to the senior population. And that population ab is absolutely, it's one of the, the most critical points of the year for them to make that decision that's going to impact their lives financially and from a health standpoint for the next year. And they need to do that with a great deal of confidence. 
And how better can they do that than if they're talking to someone that can project the empathy? Yes, Mr. Smith, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been there, or my parents have been there, or I have a dear friend who has been there. Projecting that empathy and yet still giving perfect information, information that's clear, understandable, concise, and correct, so that the person can make a, uh, a great judgment on it. And Ken Epstein, one of my partners in crime, uh, we have just come off an assignment, actually, where we were actually helping one of the largest BPO organizations in the world prepare themselves to jump into that. Ken, yeah, you might want to share with our audience that recent experience that we've had. Well, you know, it's interesting, Rick. We talk, we're talking about um, empathy. We're talking about personal connection. And we're also talking about technology. We're talking about digital tools in our work environment. And you would tend to think that as you get more automated, you get less personal. But the really interesting thing that I've found is that the evolution of our business as we are a communication channel for companies and their customers is that the deployment of digital tools sometimes allows agents who are having conversations with callers, whether it be somebody signing up for a Medicare plan or somebody that just has questions about their plan or maybe something from a completely different industry, it allows the agent to focus on what really should be the most important part of the interaction, which is, to your point, the conversation, to make that connection. Digital tools don't necessarily take the agent away from the caller. They can bring the agent actually closer to the caller because the digital tools do a lot of the heavy lifting for them. So the empathy, if anything, has gotten stronger and the personal connection between the caller and the person taking the call has gotten much stronger as the business has evolved with some of the great uh, with some of the great digital tools that are available today. The other thing is we talk about Medicare um, and Medicaid, but particularly in the Medicare perspective, uh, aging in at 65 years old. When we first began to communicate with 65 year olds who were and older who were actually signing up for plans the way that they thought was very different 15 years ago than it is today. I mean, we're all beginning to age into Medicare now. Baby boomers are aging in, and they're much more respect, uh, receptive, and they're more uh, early adopters of some of the technologies that we couldn't even begin to put in front of them years ago. So I think what has happened is we've made it more personal, more compliant, and, uh, and, and much more thorough in terms of the actual interaction between an agent and between that caller. I remember, Ken, and I think I'm gonna give you credit for this. I think it was your idea when we worked together at a prior company where you had the agents put a picture of like a grandparent. Yeah. And, um, and it was, you know, before a lot of these tools existed, we, you were like creating it with the operations teams of really pulling out the empathy and making sure that the agents knew that that might be the only phone call that that person received that day, which is so important. So. It is sad because one of the things we learned dealing in that environment, to your point, is that may be the only interaction that a senior citizen has with another human being. I mean, we have uh, borne witness to conversations where people literally are brought to tears because an agent wishes them a happy birthday and a human being hasn't wished them a happy birthday in many, many years. So from the perspective of what we do uh, and something that we can never ever lose sight of as the owners of the communication is the communication itself. 
a lot of times companies that do what we do get so hunkered down in bells and whistles and technologies and things that just are automated and they just happen when they happen that we forget about the fact that we're dealing with another human being. So to your point, uh, yeah, you're right. Many years ago, uh, we had the idea that we would have a contest and we had our agents in a, in a captive call center, uh, brick and mortar, bringing in their favorite picture of grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, and, you know, and and Julie, um, Uncle Joe. And we put those pictures, we blew them up and we put them all over the center. And with the simple words underneath the tagline that said, you could be talking to me. And it made them realize just how important it was, because how would you want someone talking to your mom or talking to your grandpa if they had to ask hard questions about, hey, can I afford to pay for my rent? Or can I afford to pay for my medicine? And sometimes the conversations are 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 that difficult. Absolutely. You remember that, Rick? When we did, and we also had Rick in one of our sites. Didn't we have a like a simulation of an apartment? Didn't we? We did. We did. In fact, um, what we did is we used Miguel's mother as one of the uh, the wonderful examples of what Ken just described and how Mima, as we all call her, we've all adopted her as our uh, as our mom, how Mima went through that aging process and the drama and trauma that it causes, the confusion that it can cause if it's not handled correctly. And the other thing that we were able to do, and Alicia, you were instrumental in this in that uh, former company as well, and I thought this to be a, a wonderful case study. The question is, how, how do you train empathy? It's such an ingrained attribute of our personalities, but can you bring it out? And if you recall, in one of our large operating centers in uh, Idaho, we adopted uh, a large hospital system. And what do you need, uh, was the question that went out. I said, well, believe it or not, we need head coverings for our infants, our preemies all over the, uh, all over the world. Uh, it was St. Luke's uh, system. Our preemies all over the world, uh, they're, they're, there's a dearth of these head coverings for these uh, little ones. So the community came together, our call center community, and they began to crochet and knit these tiny head caps. And I can't ever forget getting off the airplane in Idaho, walking into the center. And the first person I saw was a large man, ex-football player. His thumbs were as big as my forearms. And he's gleefully crocheting a little tiny cap for a little tiny baby. That's how you build empathy. That's how it works. And as, as, trite as that could sound surfacely, it's not anecdotal. It really is something that exercises like that to produce empathy, to be able to transmit that empathy, especially in today's digital world, is incredibly, incredibly important to get over the sterility of machine, automated machine education and inject personality into it. We'll talk about that uh, at greater length in some of these future conversations. Yeah. No, Rick, you, you mentioned, um, and what, what comes to mind as we talk about digital tools and we talk about everything automated, as you may recall, um, many, many years ago, again, I'm, I'm re relating back to dealing with Medicare members, um, we made the decision, and it went a really long way, to send handwritten 
personalized handwritten notes to each and every one of them at a time when you can just push a button and letters would go out, you know, in mass and be shipped out to people. We had agents that really sat down after a conversation with a member um, and sort of just thanked them very much for their time, you know, reiterated once again, whatever the uh, whatever the solution was to the issue that they called for and then signed it, put a stamp on an envelope, put it in a mailbox and sent it out. And that that kind of empathy went so far. The uh, the members absolutely loved it. At a time when everything is going very uh, technologically based, very digitally based, here we were having people with you know a pen and a, and a and a and a little note card and writing them a personal note. So there's a there's a fine line there, and you want to leverage the tools, but you don't want to get lost in the tools. You want to make sure that you're always keeping that human element because that is the differentiator in making a connection with somebody. And let's face it, everybody that we talk to on behalf of all the clients that we've represented, uh, you know, we represent them. And the, the, the conversation that they have with us is a conversation with those clients. And that goes an awful long way to developing maybe beyond loyalty, even creating sort of customer evangelists. Yeah, it really is a great point, Ken, because it's the balance, isn't it? And we, in the customer experience uh, service sector, we deal with such a broad spectrum of customers, patients, or members, don't we? And that spectrum may be young millennials and post-millennials to uh, boomers and, uh, <clears throat> and super seniors, each having a very, very different need and a very different way of wanting to communicate with a service provider or a provider of goods. And we've got to be in a position to cater to that. So what we've talked about for the last several minutes is how we would communicate with the group of consumers out there that are, are looking for that support in a post-retirement world. I happen to be the proud father of five children, and there's a pretty big age gap, the oldest being 40, the youngest being 20. The 40-year-old wants to deal with, in his life, with his uh, service providers in a very different manner than the 20-year-old. The 40-year-old has a combination, self-service in some regards and high-touch service in another. The 20-year-old, although she is one of the most personable people you ever met, regarding phone conversations, she'd rather sandpaper arrivals. And she wants to be able to communicate in an entirely digital fashion. And the art and science of providing an excellence in a customer experience is be, being able to satisfy that broad spectrum because they're all customers, they're all members, they're all patients. Yeah, very well said. The, uh, the contact channel may differ based on demographic, based on age, based on desire. So you really wanna be able to provide whatever uh, tool that they wanna use to communicate, whatever makes them the most comfortable. And you still wanna be able to keep that human touch no matter what you do. So we talked about certainly seniors and probably needing a little bit more handholding uh, than some uh, some of the younger folks, millennials and Gen Xs, uh, who would much rather just sort of hammer through a text and, uh, and get their answer very quickly. And they appreciate it every bit as much as the senior citizen who just got a handwritten note thanking them for their time. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I know you guys have had a ton of experience with um, uh, has been really 
deploying and managing remote workforces. So I would love to, to bring us together on another podcast to really talk about the power of empathy and connecting culture in those workforces, because I think it also goes a long way. And, and I know you guys have a lot to say about that. Um, I know there's a very interesting project that you guys are working on, which I think is where Miguel is today, that I can't wait for us to share because you guys are doing some crazy interesting things in healthcare right now that we are excited to talk about. Um, and I think we have a client potentially that will be coming on to a future podcast with the two of you if uh, if we can make the time if you guys aren't too busy. Um, so I think this has been really good conversation. I'm going to let you guys know something and I don't want to put you on the spot, but Miguel always likes to close by asking the guests what their favorite restaurant is, can be any city. Um, so since it's your first time on the podcast, I think you guys have to answer that question as well. So Rick, I'm going to let you go first. Sure. Well, that's an intimidating question, Alicia, because with Miguel, eating is one of his best things. So, but I will tell you, as uh, newly relocated to Charlotte, North Carolina, we have discovered a delightful restaurant. The name is Miro. It's spelled M-I-R-O. It's a Spanish-American restaurant in the Blakeney section of Charlotte. The cuisine is absolutely Oh, gosh, it's beyond description. It's it, it just fantastic. It's uh, it's a broad spectrum menu with a Spanish flair to virtually every dish. Impeccable service. I went into the restaurant once. They remembered my name the second time. And it's intimate yet comfortable. And I would highly recommend it to anyone visiting the Charlotte area. Again, the name is Miro, M-I-R-O. And just uh, tell them Rick sent you. Oh, Awesome. No, you're you live very close to my hometown, so I will be going there at some point. So, all right, Ken, what to give us what you got? Well, first of all, I know why Miguel asked that question because uh, Miguel is definitely a foodie, and he keeps a one of the most uh, comprehensive databases of rest, literally a database of restaurants that I've ever seen in my life. So I usually call him and say, "I'm going to City X. Tell me where to go." Uh, but we have spent quite a bit of time on the road. Uh, and so we've seen restaurants all over the world. I would have to tell you that um, I do think my very favorite restaurant is in Little Italy in New York. And it's a little tiny place. It's been there for probably 120 years and it's called Benito One. And I think there's a Benito Two and a Benito Three. Um, but it is your classic old school Italian where there's uh, there's a like a little old lady in the back who's stirring the sauces and who's making everything from scratch. Uh, I've never had a bad meal there. So if you're in New York City and you want to kind of get off the tourist path and go to this great little quaint place in, uh, in Little Italy, go to the Benito one. Well, that's cool. And it's certainly not lost on the, with the conversation we just had that both of those places had the personal touch. So there you go, bringing it full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we're excited. Um, I can't wait to do this again. I think we have a lot of cool topics plans and I know our listeners enjoyed hearing from the two of you. So thank you for being on Miguel's CX on Point podcast. Um, and we will uh, we'll bring you the next episode real soon. Thanks so much.